Welcome. This is a roundtable on mind, faith, and spirit. I am Amy Gutman, and I direct the University Center for Human Values. We are sponsoring this roundtable. In 1931, a Princeton junior wrote his father a letter that captures the spirit of the University Center some 60 years before it was created. Dear Father, he wrote, you suggest that the greatest benefit from college is to be found in the formation of habits of intellectual diligence and application. And of course, until these are established, one's abilities must remain practically ineffective. However important all this may be, I am nonetheless putting my chief emphasis on the study of right and wrong. Even though such a procedure must first lead me through a period of confusion and conflicting desires and actions, I must constantly be testing what I'm taught and have been taught before with my own experience and reasoning in order to develop an independent and personal philosophy and sense of value as a result of my own intuitions and insight. Now, as some of you may have guessed, the student was Lawrence S. Rockefeller, class of 1932, whose generosity, whose generous spirit, whose vision helped create the University Center for Human Values nine years ago, 60 years after he wrote his letter. It gives me the greatest pleasure to tell you that Lawrence is here with us today so that we might renew our thanks to him. Lawrence, would you please stand up? Now, not to leave any story totally incomplete, I should tell you that John D. Rockefeller Jr. wrote back to Lawrence a year later. You may be wondering what he wrote. This is what he wrote. I am wondering what progress you are making toward the goal, for it is a vital one, a fatherly thing to say. Lawrence's progress, I am pleased to report, and I'm sure his father knows this, is nothing short of phenomenal. His integrity, his openness to new people and to new understandings, many of which we will see later today, has radiated throughout the University Center for Human Values and Princeton University and beyond. In keeping with Lawrence's spirit, and the University Center's mission to support the ongoing search into the meaning and value of human life and of our relationship to one another, we have chosen a small subject for today's roundtable. Mind, faith, and spirit. To aid us in this exploration, we have invited six great men and women to join us. And I will introduce them briefly because you have in your program more expansive introductions. Mr. William F. Buckley, Jr., editor, lecturer, host of Firing Line, Roman Catholic, 
author of God and Man at Yale. We would have liked to have you at Princeton, but the book belongs to Yale, we hope. Up from Liberalism, Gratitude, Reflections on What We Owe to Our Country, and most recently, Nearer My God. Mr. Buckley has contributed to discussions and debates on this subject and almost every other important subject known to humankind. <laughs> and he's contributed to books as far-ranging as What is Conservatism and The Beatles Book. Reverend James A. Forbes, Jr., Senior Minister of Riverside Church in New York, the first African-American minister of one of the largest multicultural congregations in the United States. Reverend Ford Forbes has been hailed as one of the most amazing and effective preachers in the English-speaking world. He has amazing grace. He is author of Healing the Spirit in America and co-chair of the Interfaith, a Partnership of Faith. Rabbi Laura Geller, senior rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills since 1994. She's the third woman to be ordained in the Reformed Jewish movement and the first woman to lead a major metropolitan synagogue. The author of Torah commentaries and insightful essays on Jewish feminism, Rabbi Geller has been honored for her work in fostering racial and cultural harmony. Dr. Joan Halifax, Buddhist teacher, Buddhist priest, anthropologist, author, and social activist. She has authored The Human Encounter with Death and Simplicity in the Complex, A Buddhist Life in America. Dr. Halifax is the founder of the Project on Being with Dying and Upaya, a Buddhist center in Santa Fe. She works with people with catastrophic illnesses and teaches internationally on Buddhism. Professor Syed Hossein Nasser, University Professor of Islamic Studies at George Washington University, taught for 20 years at Tehran University and was the first president of the Iranian Academy of Philosophy before coming to this country and enlightening us with his understandings of Islam. He is the author of Ideals and Realities of Islam and Islamic Spirituality, along with many essays on the religious dimensions of the world environmental crisis. Professor Duwei Ming, director of the Harvard Yenching Institute, professor of Chinese history and philosophy at Harvard. He has also taught at Berkeley and Princeton. He is the author of Neo-Confucian Thought and Confucian Thought, Selfhood as Creative Transformation. He is the foremost interpreter of Confucian ethics as a spiritual resource for an emerging world community. Mr. Bill Moyers will be our moderator this afternoon. Mr. Moyers is the model broadcast journalist. He has been aptly called a unique voice, still seeking new frontiers in television daring to assume that viewing audiences are willing to think and learn. Mr. Moyers and his wife and partner Judith have produced over 250 programming hours for public affairs television, and that's not what's remarkable, but all, every hour, is worth not only watching, but contemplating after we watch it. 
Mr. Moyers is, as his best-selling book modestly puts it, listening to America. He is asking us the most provocative questions on the most important soul-searching issues of our time and of all time. That is one of many reasons that we're so pleased that Mr. Moyers has agreed to lead this roundtable. He, along with our six other honored guests, will provoke us into thinking more about the relationship of our, of our increasingly cacophonous minds, faiths, and spirits. Please join me in welcoming our honored guests. Thank you, Professor Gutman, for those very ringing words of welcome to us, those introductions. Uh, thanks to the Center for sponsoring this, to Lawrence Rockefeller for his inspiration. Thanks to you for being here on this beautiful spring afternoon. It's been two years since I was in this auditorium. The New Jersey Symphony Orchestra did Aaron Copeland's Lincoln, and I was Lincoln. Uh, that's as close as I'll probably ever get to being a Republican. <laughs> so, you'll notice that I'm sitting as far away from Bill Buckley as I can. Uh, but I've been reading Bill Buckley for all of my adult life, and I haven't been contaminated, so you don't have to worry today at all either. <laughs> When Judith and I arrived, we stopped and had coffee in Palmer Square. We were sitting outside, and as we talked, a din of voices kept inter interrupting our own conversation. An Asian family passed wearing Texas t-shirts, speaking a language I didn't understand. As I was getting the coffee, I heard two women speaking what I think was Polish, as Judith and I sat outside, we heard another pair of women conversing with each other in German. I heard Yiddish off in the background. An African-American woman passed with her two children. And I had an anticipation of our subject today. We are entering a new religious landscape in America. For most of our history, this country's religious discourse was dominated by white male Protestants of a culturally uh, conservative European heritage, people like me. We had a virtual monopoly on the conversation, and dissenting visions of America, alternative views of faith, rarely reached the mainstream. Recently, a friend of mine sent me a cartoon from California of two weirdos in the diner. One weirdo asked the other, have you ever had any, have you, any experience with Eastern religion? The other weirdo answered, saying, yes, I was once a Methodist in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, once, once upon a time, that was about the extent of our exposure to the varieties of religious experience in our public square. But it's different now. Our nation is being recreated right before our eyes. If you travel the country as a journalist, as I do, you see an America dotted with mosques in Toledo, Phoenix, Atlanta. 
There are more Muslims in America today than Episcopalians or Presbyterians, and within a few years, by one account, there may be more Muslims than Jews in America. We have huge Hindu temples in Pittsburgh, Albany, New York, California's Silicon Valley. There are Sikh communities in Stockton and Queens, and Buddhist retreat centers in the mountains of Vermont and West Virginia. A Buddhist American died on the Challenger. A Muslim American is the mayor of a Texas town. Hindu Americans are now managers at Boston Edison and Procter and Gamble. Meanwhile, Pentecostals are growing in numbers, and Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, are doubling in number every 15 years. A shrinking world means that ideas and different stories are impinging upon us everywhere. Because every religion conveys possible ways of expressing human existence and self-understanding, and because each can appear utterly incomprehensible to the other, we're facing what Gerald Bruns calls a contest of narratives. There are more meanings than we know what to do with, and like Odysseus, we are accumulating more stories than we could possibly want, but not too many stories to tell. This would seem an enticing prospect in a, in a country that now celebrates diversity and pluralism, but we're talking about religion here. And as everyone in this room knows, religion can turn holy stories into flaming swords. As Princeton's own Elaine Pagels said in our series on Genesis recently on PBS, there's practically no religion I know of that sees other people in a way that affirms the other's choice. That's the issue we face in a democracy. What does it mean for us as we contend with the never-ending work of our society, the tedious, hard, perplexing, messy, and seemingly endless task of working through what kind of people we're going to be and what kind of communities we're going to live in. Surely religion has to be a part of that conversation. Religion as a wellspring of values reflecting different aspirations for our moral and political order. Religion as the exercise of free men and women trying to find meaning in a vast and expanding universe, religion as the interpretation of life itself. But here we meet the paradox that was recently underscored by Václav Havel. He pointed out that although the ambitions of the great religions are coming to the fore with increasing sharpness, this fact conceals a more important phenomenon, that this civilization in which this religious activity is taking place is in essence a deeply atheistic one a civilization that has renounced any kind of metaphysics, including its own metaphysical roots, and no longer bothers even to inquire into the meaning of existence. In the process, says Havel, we've lost the certainty that our own lives are works of creation with any transcendent significance, or that we are morally responsible for the planet that is the womb of our life. The major faiths can help us, Havel writes, in its own way, each points to the possibility that we're not just freaks of nature, but rather part of that mysterious yet integral act of creation, which we sense intuitively it is our purpose to further. But if Havel is right, and religion can inform us, in the real world of democracy, how do I hold my truth to be the truth when everyone else sees truth differently? I put that question recently to the renowned 
comparative religionist of America, Houston Smith, over a long lifetime in posts from MIT to Berkeley. He has tried to penetrate the essence of the world's great religions. And on a recent PBS series, I asked him that question, how can I hold my truth to be the truth when everyone else holds his or her truth to be differently? He thought a moment. It was one of those rare moments on television where you can actually see someone thinking. That he answered, he answered, we listen. We listen as alertly to other people's description of reality as we hope they listen to us. That's what we want to do this afternoon. This is a dialogue, not a monologue. It's a conversation, not a soliloquy. Our participants, participants are not from the same neighborhood. Talking with people who agree with you is like jogging in a cul-de-sac. <laughs> and so we decided this afternoon to run on an open road with people who are not from the same neighborhood. And I'd be interested in hearing what each of you has to say, or those of you who want to address this question to begin with. Is there any one of you who does not have faith in God? Oh. If God is understood from monotheistic traditions, it could turn out to be problematical for me. If God is understood as uh, creativity in itself, as a generative force, as a transformative power, as the source of all values, all truths, all ideas of human self-realization, then I certainly have faith in God. I'd like to speak as an American Buddhist because I was born a Christian and raised a Christian, actually sent to Christian schools. And my faith in God, in a certain way, became very clear to me as my father was dying two years ago. And in literally his final hours, I had, and it was like a spontaneous movement of, of praying. And I realized I prayed God. I was actually rather surprised. <laughs> Um, because I hadn't prayed for anything or to God in decades. And what I realized is that at a very deep level, having been raised within a Christian family, that God as a presence never leaves me. However, my practice of Buddhism, my service in the world, um, the psychology and philosophy of Buddhism does not exclude God, as uh, you have just pointed out, at all. Can you hear? You can't hear. You're going to have to speak right into your microphone like this. Yeah. You can hear me, but you couldn't hear Joan, right? Would you just read? So is that better? Yes. Okay. Great. Maybe you better hold it. Because I, don't, I think they missed what you said. If you don't mind. I don't mind right. trying. I, I've been a Buddhist for 30 years, uh, entering into the practice as uh, someone in the 60s who was a civil rights worker, uh, part of the anti-war movement, very much uh, in the, the soup of the 60s. And I entered it not because I was looking for religion, but I was actually looking for stability. And I found the psychology and philosophy of Buddhism very helpful. However, I was born into a Christian family I was sent to Christian schools, and um, something inside of me that, that is what I would call essential 
uh, is not apart from my own Christian background. And as I just said, it became very clear to me as my father was in his last hours of life that I actually, and he wasn't much of a Christian either, I must say, but I actually very spontaneously, because he was suffering profoundly, I prayed to God that he would be free from suffering. And I mean, I said God. And I kind of stood up inside of myself and I went, you know, um, the brand of Buddhism that I practice um, includes God, but maybe not um, God in the way that I thought about God when I was in Sunday school or in church school. And it's much more in the spirit about which you're speaking. Just enough. I think you have pointed uh, to something which is very important to consider. A word such as God in any language becomes impregnated by, of course, the religious and cultural values of the civilization or society which happens to use that language. Now, the word God, obviously, used in English or its equivalent in Latin Deus, was impregnated, of course, by the Christian conception of God. But nevertheless, it's not privative. It is not limited to that. In the same way that Jews and Christians put all the other people aside to use the word God without one misunderstanding the other. Now that meaning will have to be expanded further. I do not believe that we need to have a new word, but God must include shunyata. Why is God only the positive categories? Why is it not the apophatic descriptions which you even have in Christian mysticism? Why is it not the Tao? Why is it not the creative origin, the absolute reality? All of these words and names which are used in different religions will have to gradually come into the usage of the word God as the word God expands in a culture in which those different religions now find an expression. So I think to your question, if we expand that meaning, I don't think anyone who follows any of the religions of the world would say no. But if you limit the meaning of God as understood traditionally in the English language, it would even exclude Allah. We even, I oftentimes have discussion with Muslim friends why I translated the word Allah as God, because they said that means the Trinity. I said, no, it does not. This is um, a meaning of the word God, but the Jews have been using the word God in English for several centuries without accepting the Trinity. So I think we have to expand from within the various fundamental religious concepts that we have in order to be able to understand others who are living within our societies without destroying that reality. That is very, very significant. That is, we cannot reduce the meaning of God to what uh, lowest common denominator understanding. I stand much more in favor of the most uncommon numerator than of this common denominator. That's the worst thing possible. I'm not saying that. But you have to expand the inner metaphysical meaning of such key terms. Are you hearing? Yeah, good. And I think we do it within our own traditions as well. As a rabbi, uh, I'm in the um, unfortunate situation of people coming up to me at all kinds of inappropriate times saying, you know, Rabbi, I don't believe in God. It happens in the supermarket. It happens in the synagogue. <laughs> it happens in the health club. And I've learned over the years to stop and to say, tell me exactly what kind of God you don't believe in. And I bet you that I don't believe in that God either. I think for many sophisticated people, we understand the God we once believed in when we were six years old. And as we grow up, that notion of God no longer makes sense to us, but we haven't continued our own intellectual and theological development 
to find other ways of understanding God. When you talk to people, more and more people, I think, do have a space in their lives for um, orienting themselves to something larger than themselves, a source of value, a source of meaning, a source of energy and creativity. And it seems to me that certainly within my religious tradition, that is what God is really about. When you asked if you believe in God, I knew that coming from the South and also growing up in a Pentecostal background, I should say, yes, I believe in God. So I wanted to say something significant and to say that I believe in God, but I do not believe in the ultimacy of the God I believe in. That is, the adequacy of my conceptualization of that God, I do not believe in the limitations that my theological framework has placed around that God. I believe in a God who does not want to be believed in as I have been taught to believe alone, but to believe in that God enough to live in some kind of practical relationship to the being of the God that is not unrelated to the concept but always leaves room for my discovery of the atheism within my own existence or either the agnosticism and also keeps a little space to be surprised about God appearing in other forms than I had affirmed in the past. You want to add something, Mr. Buckley? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> or just refer people to your book. <laughs> I, I have a slight feeling I may be a little bit of an imposter in this, uh, uh, in this, in this distinguished uh, uh, panel because I'm sort of ridden with uh, belief. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have to, I have to confess that I really not, don't have much curiosity about other creeds. If I took the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, I wouldn't feel any particular curiosity about other Pledges of Allegiance. So uh, I was, uh, I'm a, a Christian, I'm a Catholic. Uh, I, I believe that, that uh, it is through grace <clears throat> that I profit from belief. And uh, I, I am persuaded by, by reason and, and by history that uh, Christ was divine and was a redeemer. Under the circumstances, to the extent that one is not a Christian, one is dealing with uh, schismatics or, or heretics or non-believers. Now, one can have an, an entirely clinical curiosity uh, for what they do believe in and uh, I don't have, have much of a take to, but, uh, but it is very different from listening, as I understand you, to be encouraging us to do. I'm delighted and uh, grateful for an opportunity to help anybody in respect of anything that I can be helpful about. But I don't want to pretend um, at my age that um, I am, as of this afternoon, going to generate a synthetic interest in Buddhism. Much so I'm transfixed by the wonderful representative of Buddhism here. So, so uh, whatever you want to make out of that, um, 
I'll proceed to do so. With this. <laughs> no attachment, no suffering. With, right. Within your Christian, your own particular Christian frame, is there a difference between faith and belief? Or are they the same? Are you, are you asking a philological question? Or, well, I'm asking mean, a question as, actually. As, as they're used? I'm actually, yes, actually inspired by something that uh, uh, the Zen philosopher Alan Watts said. He said, belief is the insistence that the truth is what one would wish it to be. Faith is an unreserved opening of the mind to truth wherever it may take you. Well, but my understanding of, of the first is that it it commits you to that uh, openness. Uh, Christ, Christ being um, uh, omnipotent, uh, what, what he leads you on to believe over and above what you already believe in, you simply accept uh, as a, a, a part of a continuing evolutionary process. But this doesn't entirely, as far as I can see, to uh, anticipate anything uh, disorderly uh, in that line. I can understand people who feel an epiphany this afternoon because uh, they had a sort of a, a, a burst of mutuality with, uh, with God. But I don't think this contradicts any commitment that I feel and that, uh, that perhaps you feel to uh, what, what one used to call before the doctrine of, of, of PC correctness moved in on us, the one true faith. I once put that question to Joseph Campbell. I said, you're talking about faith in God. And he said, no, I'm talking about the experience of God. And I don't think he meant that just philologically. Well, uh, uh, of course, great minds and great writers have recited their experiences. And I think one acknowledges that they are, are individual. The experience of one is not never the identical to the experience of someone else. But the, the, the inquiry, uh, if it is made in, in, in a spirit of, of epistemological relativism, presupposes that you're going to find out something you don't really already know. But uh, it seems to me that a Christian is devoted to the knowledge that we know what God divulged uh, in the Bible, and all the rest is exegesis. How do the others of you react to Mr. Buckley's statement about <laughs> the one true faith? Well, it seems to me that there, are, uh, there is an exclusivist position and a pluralist position. An exclusivist position is a position that says, I have the one true faith, and all other, um, all other paths are simply not true. I think one can have a, a pluralist position which says, my faith commitments are my truth. They're not necessarily someone else's truth, and I can learn from someone else's truth. And for me, that's been an important part of my religious life. Um, for example, as a Jew, I'm completely committed to my understanding of a sacred story. It animates my life. It is true for me and for my community. But I certainly have enriched my own story by interacting with other religious people who are committed to their own truths in two particular examples. I think Judaism has grown a great deal recently in interaction with Buddhism. 
um, forms of Jewish prayer have been enriched by meditation, which turns out to have always been part of Jewish tradition, but to somehow have gotten lost over the last 4,000 years. And it's being recovered now as Jews and Buddhists interact with each other, and we can learn from other people's prayer, um, you know, contemplative practices. I also think that I have gained from uh, feminism, and particularly from Christian feminists, as I have struggled with my own understandings of God in the light of their struggling with God. So my truth becomes truer for me as I listen to other people's truths. It doesn't mean that mine is the only truth, but it is the truth for me. I, I, I think we're using truth in a different, yes. in, in an entirely different way. If it's true, then by definition it excludes that which contradicts it. And, uh, I think now, obviously the, this interaction, the, the Old Testament certainly interacts with the New Testament, but I think you have something else in mind when you, when you talk about that. So. I think there's been a third position in addition to what uh, Rabbi Geller says. If you start with the, can you hear me? I don't know why they had it stuck to us if you think. I think there is a third position, in addition to the two positions just mentioned by Rabbi Geller, that is either there is only one truth, and that is my truth, everybody else is false or wrong, or that we have a plurality of truth, and that just happens to be my truth, not the truth. I think there is a third position. There is, because if it's only my truth, I am relative. Therefore, all religious truth is relative truth, and we have to forego the notion of the truth which is one of the things which is characterizes the modern world. I happen to be a graduate of a university whose motto is Veritas. But that word is never mentioned in any philosophy classes, humanities classes. It's a taboo word now. That is the truth. You know which university I'm talking about, a bit farther north than here. Uh, and uh, uh, for that reason, we have to understand that no religion can accept the idea that it is not true. I agree 100% with Mr. Buckley. If he rejects me as I being a heretic, I, never accept, I nevertheless accept his position because he claims that the truth of Christianity is the truth. That's why he follows it. If we just have truth as relativity, then why do we have to attach ourselves to it? There's a sense of absoluteness in all religions. It is that which makes pluralism difficult. And because they become what I consider to be the third position. And that is that we do not only have a lot of narratives, that's one way to look at it. I'm myself a humble scholar of many different religions. I think we have one story with many languages in which it is narrated, which is a very different matter. That is, there is what I call the perennial philosophy, or the, what Houston Smith, my dear friend, called the same. That is a, a truth which is transcendent and which is the absolute truth in itself. It manifests itself in each religious universe as the truth also, what you might call that, which is relatively absolute within that religious universe. And it is the truth in that religion. As I've always given the example of astronomy, for us in the solar system, this sun, which is now shining over our head, is also the sun. But from the point of view of the galaxies, it is a sun. And the second statement does not contradict the first statement. If we destroy the idea of absoluteness within our religion, that religion barely becomes more or less worthless, it will gradually disappear, dissipate. We have to do everything possible so that the plurality of religions 
will strengthen religions rather than diluting them, which is are one of the most difficult things. Are you saying that from a different perspective there is not God but a God? No, I'm saying that, no, no, I never said that. I'm saying that only the absolute truth is the absolute truth. Everything that descends from the absolute truth enters in a domain of relativity but participates somehow in the nature of that absoluteness within the world in which it manifests itself. That is, Christ for a Christian is God. For me, he is one of the great prophets of God. It's only God who is God. What creates the problem in various religions is that we carry the absoluteness of God to all the various levels of that religion. So, a, so the Christian God becomes a God in the same way that our cosmology, our son becomes a son. No, the Christian God remains God. You see, the point that she made, the rabbi mentioned within Judaism, you also have within Christianity, is the Christian God the goat height of Meister Eckhart or of Jonathan Edwards preaching in Boston? Which one is it? Uh, the Christian God encompasses many levels of meaning. But if you understand the highest level of meaning given to the Christian God, let's say by St. Thomas Aquinas, the Esse, with a capital E in Latin, that reality is, I would accept that as a Muslim. That is God. That is God, uh, and it's not an, a God who then becomes a prophet in my universe. I think the issue of whether we need to discover one true faith is... Um, determined in a sense by pragmatism. Today in New York City, this morning, at a table with people who were Muslims, Jews, Catholics, black and white, we've got a community problem. We discussed how are we going to <clears throat> work together to address this problem. I really think that we engage in the esoteric dimensions or transcendental conversations about the ultimate reality of God, but we have an extraordinary capacity to be able to be interested in the religions of others if they provide some basis by which we can make a critical mass to address the particular problem. So that's the first kind. I think that pragmatically we will all find a way to be appreciative of the God that the other conceives of, the God that the other prays to. At some other level, we'll talk about to what extent do these various gods we talk about know each other. And it seems to me that within the Christian tradition, there is room for the concept that although through Jesus I come to understand God in a particular way, I keep experiencing in the knowledge of Jesus that I am going to be surprised one day to discover that all of these gods know each other very much because they are one in that kind of sense. I respect uh, Mr. Buckley's uh, beliefs and belief, the, the sense of an extraordinary commitment that um, he's displayed in his few moments with us, and also uh, the sense of faith which he conveys by his presence. And for me, it is important, that level of commitment, that sense of uh, both intimacy. I mean, this is your feeling. I think my only concern is it's not so much what you believe in or what you have faith in, but it is something very simple. Are you harming others? Are you what? Harming others. Are you helping others? Are you somehow watering the seeds of well-being or peace? 
uh, on the earth? Are you creating a content? 